Peace world, easy world. It's your man and Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it's another episode of Keeping the Towel. Thank you so much for tuning in, rocking, and vibing with me as always. And ladies and gentlemen, hopefully your day, your evening, your nights, whatever time you listen to this, it is going good and it's going right. But if it's not, don't worry. We're going to work it out on today. It's a new time. It's a new opportunity. And your boy got a new guest with him. Folks, we are in the sparring gym. I'm going to go ahead and bring in my sparring partner to the gym. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Scotland, the UK, my good man. We sharing the same name today. Anthony Gordon, but we're going to call him Tony Gordon. Tony, are you in the building, sir? Yes, I am. Thank you very much for waiting on, Anthony. I appreciate it, and I love your energy. It's amazing. Folks, got them all the way from Scotland. So you see, I'm telling you, this is when you got people all over the world. They're going to come and join up. So, Tony, this is how the game goes. I'm going to need you to go ahead and have your hands wrapped. Get your gloves on. Have your mouthpiece in your mouth. Make your way to the ring. Get in your last set of instructions. And I need you to come to the center of the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Aunt Boogie and Tony Gordon. The sparring session has officially started. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. So, Tony, take us all the way to the start of where it all started for you. Um, it started 11 years ago, 2011, July 7th. Um, I just got a promotion at work, so I had a great job, brilliant career, loved what I was doing. But I started to get some pains, and I didn't understand why. Um, and we went home, pain got worse. Uh, I decided to take me doctors to get checked up. Well, I was there, the pain got worse, and I collapsed. Um, got taken to hospital, told I had an infection. So I never had done like that before, didn't really know what was going on. Kid infection, a few days, but I'd be okay. So I had some antibiotics, everything fine. Problem was, it wasn't. It just kept coming back. So every time they gave me medication, it got rid of it for about a week or two, and then it would come back again. Caused a lot of problems. Um, try to do my job and try to concentrate when you're in that many painkillers was hard. And with this went on for a few years. Um, each year I had a major operation. And in the first five years, I had five different consultants because the first four couldn't help me. They'd all operated on me, but couldn't help. So they gave up. The problem was that they couldn't find what was causing all the infections. They just tell me there's something there, but they can't find that. It became demoralizing and a bit difficult to deal with at times because I've always been such a strong guy. Um, and having something like this that you can't see, but you're trying to fight, but nobody else can see. So it's really difficult to explain to someone there's something wrong with you, but physically you look okay, but the problem is internal, not external. So. I decided that where, where I was brought up, a real tough area, um, Glasgow, that the only way to deal with things like this is just to push through it. And the most common thing people say, man up, get on with it. It was, I was brought up in a way that you get pushed out of the house to deal with anything, any problems, come back when you're sort of different. So that's how I grew up, thinking that mentally I could deal with all this. I'll, I'll deal with it, it's not going to bother me. I hadn't realised what other people had, that I was getting worse bit by bit until uh, about 2017-2018, um, it started to get really bad. Um, they just more frequent. And they said, because we saw, I hadn't told anybody really what was wrong. They knew I was off and about in the hospital. But apart from that, nobody really knew it was wrong, except my wife, a manager in my work, and I think with occupational health, who needed to make sure I was fit enough to work. But I was so good at hiding it, that my doctor told me that she didn't trust my judgment anymore. She knew that I was hiding things from her. 
and I was actually worse than what I was telling people. It was getting worse again. One last operation, they did that, called me in, that was in the January. They called me in in the April to tell me I'm now inoperable. And that was such a horrible thing to hear, is after everything I'd been through for seven years, they hadn't got to the end of it, but they told me they can't operate anymore because they've now realised they were damaging a lot of nerves inside me to try and help me. One thing basically caused another problem and they couldn't get to the bottom of it. So they decided all they can do is manage it. And their way of managing it is to give you more and more painkillers. The other bit they said me was giving me some antidepressants, but I wasn't depressed. So I didn't understand why they wanted to go on it. Their idea was anybody goes through this much pain was going to become depressed. So they would give me them first of all to build up an immune system to that, which I didn't agree with. So you said that you had all these painkillers. Yeah. Um, if you can just give me a rough estimate, how many painkillers were you taking daily or weekly? So in the morning and the evening, I think it's called MST. It's a slow releasing morphine tablets. So I had the 60 milligrams in a morning and an evening, which normally could knock somebody out. But during the day, I also had to take what's called Severidol, which is a fast release morphine. So when the pain heightened, the pain could get that bad that I'd end up on my knees. So I had to take these morphine during the day to stop the pain overwhelming me so that I could continue to try and work. So on an average day with them and including antibiotics, things that I had to take, I took 29 pills a day. Wait, 29? 29 pills a day. That's what I was on Holy the time. crap. The weird thing was that I didn't realize how bad some of them were, but talking to other people who'd seen me taking things at work, they would say that one or two of these would actually knock them out so they couldn't work, but I was still working and being on them. And it just became the fact that they built up to the morphine. I'd had things called dihydrocodine, uh, cocodamol. There was about four or five other ones. And what happened is you gradually become immune. So though these were strong painkillers, to me they were nothing because I'd been taking them that long. They had to keep changing another one until I got to the morphine. It was really difficult to get it because I started feeling that I wasn't as bright as I normally would be. I felt as though that although I was doing my job fine, there was no complaints at work again, I wasn't quite as acute. I wasn't picking things up the way I'd normally do. I wasn't able to explain things the way I'd normally do. And I started realizing that's the amount of side effects of the medication. So the day they told me I was inoperable, I decided to have this out where I would tell them that I needed to do something else, there needs to be something more. But the problem is they said they'd be looking at it and see what they could do, but there wasn't really much choice with them apart from medication. But the funny is when they, not funny, but it was funny they were looking at it, but they said to me, I would stay under this consultant, which would be unusual considering they couldn't sort me. But he says he would keep tabs of everything, including the oncology. And I was quite surprised at that, because I went to walk at me and I realised I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said the cancer. And I went, no one's told me anything about this. Now, this was in April, and I had my operation in January the same year. So three months later, nearly four months later, I found out that when they did the operation in January, they found a lump while they were operating me, so they cut it out. Luckily for me, they got the majority of it, and it was cancerous. But somehow, in a miscommunication, because I live in another area for my consultant, as I said earlier, I had so many different consultants over the years. I live in a totally different area, and it seems that the two parts of the same medical system do not speak to each other. They didn't have a central computer that talked to each other. So although my records on one were updated with this, it wasn't on my local one. So my doctor never got it to tell me that I had cancer. So within 24 hours, I was told I had to go and get an MRI scan and get another biopsy to make sure it hadn't spread in that time. 
was looking for me, I hadn't. When I left that office that day, you imagine, my head was going round in circles, my stomach was like a washing machine, and especially when I said being so strong, I didn't know what was happening to me. Every emotion you could imagine was coming out of me. Anger, rage, looked like, I suppose, lack of hope in there that, one, I was trying to fight one illness, they don't even know what it is. The other time I've got something else. I didn't know how bad at that time when I left the office until I got the biopsy. And I remember phoning my wife and I went out shopping that weekend. And that's the bit that changed my whole life. We went shopping, I remember getting out the shop, I know the shop ever, and we went to the car, I put the bags on, shut the car door, sat down, and I was like a little baby. Somebody was to imagine seeing me, but never imagine me being like that. But every kind of tear you can think of, it wasn't crying, it was like bubbling. It's like you imagine a child doing that. That's everything came out of me at one time. All the, I suppose, seven, eight years of build-up of all the pain, everything I had, just pulled out in that one 10, 15-minute period. I don't really exactly know how long it was. I just know that I couldn't explain it. My wife was with me, who's a nurse, and she always knew, seemed to know better than me when I wasn't right, but even she didn't expect this. So it was powerful. Uh, it was really difficult for me. I just wanted to get home. I remember looking out the car window as we went to drive away and there was people walking past and I wasn't even bothered. And normally that would be some, for sure that kind of emotion would have really affected me in front of people, but at that moment it didn't. I just wanted to get home. We came home and I sat in this room for enough I'm in now, for, I don't know, three to four hours, trying to put through my head what just happened. I know it all that bad news, but it didn't hit me right away. That was like 48 hours later before it hit me. And all the emotion having it pulled out of me was just total embarrassment, rage, anger, frustration, all at one time. I had never faced that many emotions at one time, so I was good at controlling things, but even I couldn't control that. Let's recap this part. So basically, you went into one doctor, one consultant, and then they said, hey, you're fine. Then another one goes and says, no, you got a problem. So basically, somebody does not have the same information that yep. the other has that you have cancer and then now you go through this entire ordeal which is which is crazy to deal with as you're in that car and you sat there and you cry because you said that you're just not that person who had those emotions and you had all these emotions that started flooding you at the moment tony while you're in that car and you're just crying weeping more than you ever have in your life what's going through your head at that time the first thing through is this isn't me. That's the first thing I just remember all the time was going through my head, this is not me. It felt like I was outside that body and it was someone else that was doing that. It just felt like I was two different halves at the one time. There was one part of my mind saying, this isn't right, I shouldn't be like this. And the other part was just full emotion. It was just total emotions pouring out. I think the embarrassment side of it wasn't because there was people walking by or anything, it's because my wife's never seen me like that. She's never seen that side of me. I felt was so weak. I felt it was so vulnerable. They couldn't control themselves. It was difficult to face that. Um, still has to, to talk about it. I'd put myself back in that position. Still not easy for me because I said people that knew me could never imagine that happening to me. Right. Um, I don't show my emotion very often. I'm very good at that, actually. I think the embarrassment, yeah, but then the anger. And that's why I wanted to go home. I was really, really angry. What were you angry at? First I thought it was the doctors and I realised it wasn't, it was me. I was really angry with myself for letting that happen to me. I was angry because I said to you earlier, I was brought up in such a way that you didn't let emotions or feelings and like get to you. You learned how to deal with them, but you didn't. You think all your life you're dealing with them, but all you're doing is suppressing them. You keep them inside so nobody else sees them. 
But the way I put it to people is that I kept trying to think like a volcano. It's had lies dormant for so long. And then all of a sudden it just bursts. And when you watch a volcano when it goes, it's like a little bit of first and suddenly everything just pulls out. It never seems to go with little dribbles. It is an explosion. That's what I was like that day. It was like I'd been dormant for those years since the day that I'd first got the pain. Up until that day, all the emotion ever in me, I must have just blocked or put down somewhere inside me. Even through all the operations I've never through, I had somehow managed to cope with that by keeping them all inside, not telling people. And that was the bit I think it was that the worst that when I was trying that, I didn't want other people to know. I wanted just to be us and I just hoping that whoever passed by wasn't something that knew me. You have this moment where you break down for the first time ever in your life. Was this something that you grew up with in your upbringing that men are not supposed to show their emotions or anything like that? Was this something that came in your background? Not just my family, but every family run about where I grew up were the same. The males, they just didn't talk about things like that. My parents, you look at my dad, I never ever saw my dad cry. I'd never seen my dad show. Only emotion I ever saw my dad show was rage. Mm. It's the only thing really I'd ever seen him in my life growing up was rage. He would show that if something wasn't right, or like for him, if he couldn't get something done or that, he'd be angry about it. Or I remember saying when I was young, um, coming home, and I had a cut, I remember my lip was cut, I think my nose was cut. And I came out, I was about seven, eight years old, something like that. I remember coming home at the house and he stopped me coming in and said, what, you, what happened to you? And I said, there was four guys jumping me out of school. And he went, what happened to them? I, went, I don't know, they probably done the hill. So he sent me back to go and get them for what they'd done to me and come back once I'd done that. So I went actually around the corner, realised there's no way I was going back down to get another beating like that again. So I punched the wall as hard as I could, so my hand was all cut as if I'd hit someone. Put another wee marker through my face, I was hitting my face so it went red, as if I took a couple of blows, but nothing major. Went back, shut the door again, he opened the door up, I just put my shoulders up, head up, walked by, I went, I got the morning, and I walked in, so I made sure he could see my hand when I walked in. I just went into the house and I had to go and get cleaned up. He never spoke about it, he didn't say anything. And that went on for 20 odd years. Uh, he never told me about that. And then when we were talking about what's happened to me now and everything, and I said to him, well, you made me this way because you put all these rules in my head that I can't talk about things. I have to be strong. I have to look after the family. I have to be around for everybody else. And I told him about that story. And he went, but you went out and hit a wall. I went, how did you know that? He went, because the stones were still in your hand when you came in, but you needed to learn a lesson. And is that life isn't easy and life will knock you down. But it wasn't about going back and doing anything. It was the fact that you did guts to turn around and go back, even if you didn't go there. So that was the way I was brought up, to have that mentality to face anything. No matter how frightened you were, as long as you could face it, then you would accept it. You're in the house, it's you and your wife. What was home life like now, after the breakdown, after the diagnosis? What was the whole atmosphere like between you and your wife? I can't sit in down from her side except she was a total rock. I kept thinking it's hard enough for her doing the job she does. She's a nurse and she deals with palliative patients. That's people who are end of life. She's there to help them to ease them until and happens when they come home at hospital basically to die. So it's her life and that job is so stressful. But it's a vocation to her, it's not a job. She loves what she does and she loves helping them. But she was having to deal with me up to that point for, what was that, seven years. Coming home for a job, going to the hospitals every night to visit me five, six times a year. She was always there no matter what. 
When I came out of the hospital, she wanted to tell me I'm not fit enough to go back to work. I didn't want to go back. She was always there for me. She still is all the time. She could recognise better than me when I wasn't right. She'd know before I even knew that something was wrong. She could tell. She started selling signs and looking at me. She never really said about it, but the thing that day, I think, was that she was happy that I let it out rather than building it up and building it up because it was bothering her that I wasn't talking about it, even to her. I wasn't talking enough. I would tell her I wasn't right, but what I didn't realise was that I was snapping a lot. So she'd say something to me and I'd bite back because of the pain, because of the discomfort, because everything that was happening, I would argue and bite it on and I never even knew I was doing it. And I actually thought it was her. I'm thinking she had no time or she'd just get sick of this, so I would bite worse and I went, when then I was sitting talking about it and I never realised I was doing that to her. I never realised that that had been building up until that day. That day, she knew it was coming eventually. Just didn't know when or where it was going to happen, but she knew I could. There's no way that any human being could cope with what I was going through. You can always say people say grateful for somebody else in your life, but I wouldn't be here then now if it wasn't for her. Because there was a few times during this, I would have gave up with the amount of pain I was in. I just didn't want to be here. But she always keeps me going, and she still does. Knowing I've got to face this the rest of my life, every three months, I have to be tested again to see if the cancer is spread. And for those three months in between, I don't really worry about it. I don't think about it because there's nothing I can do about it. But this week, I've got to be tested again. So I get a blood test on and it's sent away. And if it comes back with certain little markers on it, then they know the cancer has spread. Then I need to go biopsies again and MRI scans. I've not had one for over a year, so I've been quite lucky. I've just went over a year for the first time in 11 years that I've not been in hospital. Oh, wow. I had a operation last year. And it's a big salary for me for us to get this far. And I think for them not realising, for even the hospitals or the doctors, it's been an amazing thing for them seeing because up until that point a year ago, or a year and a half ago now, now I don't mind, I manage to deal with that. I don't have to get all the time. But I think that's the thing for her more than anything, I think that now is that we still talk. If I know I'm that bad, I'll say to her about it now that I know I'm not right. My first reaction is we need to get you checked just to make sure. But she does the blood test and everything for a minute, so that I don't have to, because it used to be awkward having to get in the surgery and you, you worry more when you do that. But I know she takes the blood, it's sent away, and I've just got to wait and they're coming back. And it's those few days of the difficult time, and I know it's probably harder for her than it is for me, because she's that worried about it. I don't really think about it until I know it's coming back or until I know the date's due back, and then I've got your phone to get it checked. And if my phone goes before that, then I know there's something not right, because it means the surgery's phoning me about it then they're not till 40 till everything's okay. Just the everyday workings and machinations of life. Just you doing simple tasks, just trying to do anything around the house and even outside of the house. What was that like? In work, when I worked for a fit one business about a year ago, when I worked in the bank, I would probably stay seated more than I had to do in a day because I didn't like keep getting up. The reason being is when I have to sit in the one spot for a little while, even half of 40 minutes, my side seizes up with the pain. So when I go to stand up, as soon as my foot hits the floor again, you're in pain. So people would notice for the first 30 seconds a minute, they could see me limping, and then I could get handle the pain so I could walk right. So that was difficult. But I used to say to people, that wasn't the worst. The worst was actually why I wouldn't go to bed at night. And people didn't understand this, but I would stay up to watch a movie, read a book, do everything, rather than going to bed at night. I stayed up as late as I could, Sundays 2 or 3 in the morning, and I had to be up again at 6 for work. When I try to explain to somebody is, the reason you do that is because you don't want to get up in the morning. 
and it's not that you don't want to be here. Some people took that the wrong way of saying it. The reason is that when you lie down for a bit, the pain is there, it never goes away, but it just throbs. When I've got to get up in the morning, that first step when my foot has to hit that floor, people can never imagine how bad that pain is. Mm. Every part of your body is an agony. It's like there's a, a knife I said to be stuck inside you and somebody's twisting it. That's mm. what it feels like. And I have to put up with it every single day, getting out there. And that's why for a long time, that was the hardest thing that I had. As I, you know, I tried to get me go, I wouldn't go to bed early because I knew that the longer I could make it last, I kept saying I wouldn't have to get up in the morning or what later, but I still had to get up. So all I was doing was defeating the bubbles of the sleep that I needed to help with the pain. That was bad, but it wasn't the most embarrassing one. And the most embarrassing still happens, the fact that it happened in the last couple of weeks, is that sometimes I can get down to do something, like for example, sometimes tying a shoelace, but I can't get back up. Because mm. if it's that bad that it just knocks me over, I have to then sit on the floor, sitting way on my knees and try and push myself up a different way so I don't put the pressure on the one side. So a few weeks ago it was out and my wife knew because I've got one giveaway that people know. When I'm really bad in pain, my face goes grey with the pain, my, cal- my colour changes. So I can't do anything about that. So I try and hide that I'm okay and I tell them okay, but people can see that. So I told her I was okay and she went, well your lace is lost and you better tie it. And she yeah, I couldn't get down and I was like, there's no way I'd get down there. So I kept walking. We had to stop. She was going to trip up. So she had to do it. And there was this little kid watching. And she just made the joke of it. She went, yeah, get that age now. You're going to have to learn to tie your own shoelaces. And the girl just started laughing. But she made it one so it wasn't as embarrassing for me. But it still was. But it made me smile, at least the fact that she could make a joke about it. But for anybody else seen it, not understanding what that's like, you can't even tie your own shoelace. That is an unbelievable feeling. It's simple, simple as that. And even now, although I've got under control, I still can't always do that. So with doing tasks that you need assistance for and trying to get things done, is there any solace that you have to find within all of this? So I used to say something to people that there's people always worse off than me. That's the thing with it is that doesn't matter how bad I was or how what I've got, every day I can walk out of my house, go anywhere, shot them out, anything, and I'll see people that are worse than me. So it makes you realise that although what you're facing seems really bad at times, it can be over-consuming on you. There's always other people's worse. And a year and a half ago, or nearly two years ago now, that's why they said I want to set my own business up, because I've been working on myself for the two years since that diagnosis, trying everything I could think of. Um, trying things like Reiki, reflexology, self-hypnosis, all these holistic methods, because my consultants said, try whatever you can, because they can't do anything. They can only deal with medication. And I didn't want to spend that much medication in my rest of my life, because I said to you, I realized I was actually getting dull, how I was speaking, what I was doing. So I asked to come off it, and they were a bit unsure about me doing that. So stupidly, I just stopped, thinking I could just stop taking the morphine, and I'd be okay. And for days, I'm running about with a little basin in my hand, because I couldn't stop being sick. My wife would try to tell me, and I went, I'll be fine, but I couldn't. I ended up having to go back on it again, because my body had been that used to having that much painkillers that there was no way it could handle being without it. So they had to then, because of my persistence, saying I'm not going to stay on them, I'll do that again if you don't get me off it. They sort of weaned me off it by cutting down the, the amount I had to take each day. I still carry them. Everywhere I go, I've got a pack in my bag just in case that anything happens. So I've always got them with me. But now I just have one main tablet that I have to take because it's an antibacterial 
because my body needs help fighting infection. So I take them twice, one of them on one at night. So really, compared to 29, I'm on two pills a day now. That's happened through me, what I did, because they couldn't get to the bottom of it or help me without medication. But I found other ways of dealing with it. I can get rid of the pain. I'm not saying it's a, a one of these cures that's going to help. I think it doesn't. The pain is always there. I just know how to deal with mentally now that what I can do, and I've got limitations in what I can do. Like I said about tiny shoelace, trying to do sport. I can't do things I know that I could do before, but I'm happy enough to know that there's so much I still can do. I just have to limit myself on what they are. And coming from over 20 pills to now just taking two at the moment, that's not bad at all. That's a very good thing, but I can only imagine when you're taking that many, the effect it has on the body. And as you said, that I can only imagine the, the tiredness, the, the dullness, and all the stuff that you're feeling. I can only imagine that because even when I see the elderly, how many pills they got to take in one day. And I'm like, geez, this is for what now? I can only imagine with you doing that. Tony, now that as you have progressed forward in your life with this and you have your wife who has stuck by your side through all of this, what has it taught you about yourself during this whole ordeal? I said a lot of it that I thought was I was getting through a lot of this was pride. The pride that I wouldn't let this beat me. The pride that I've always had that I still wanted to maintain my own dignity and be able to do things for myself. And my wife told me that it's also my biggest downfall. It's my biggest weakness is my pride. Because that's what stopped me asking for help for all those years when I really needed that was pride. It was a pride that I thought was a strength in me. I thought it was the strength in me. I did a wee exercise thing on values and beliefs, and that was the top thing that always came out for me, was how proud I am of what I do. Everything I do in life, I've always tried to do the best I can be, and I was always proud of that. But sometimes we don't realise that these, the pride, things like that, strength, we think, it means power. Strength doesn't always mean that. Strength is being able to face whatever you've got and move on from it. It doesn't matter what it is you suffer from, that's the strength. So in some ways, yeah, I had a strength to be able to do that. But I also had things that were causing weakness, causing problems for me. I think that was the one aspect of it, but the one that got me the most was vulnerability. I said the other word that I made myself on, but that's how I felt that day, by crying, by showing weakness. And I'd done a, a podcast in my own and it went out, and I did my story. Somebody asked me to put it out there so other people could hear. And I hated doing it. I had to do it with a blank screen so I wasn't speaking to anybody, just but practice as if I was talking to my dad because I hadn't told to any of my family how bad I was. They knew I'd been in hospital and that, but I never told them how bad I'd been or what I'd been going through. And one of the people who used to work with me said, she can't believe I let myself be so vulnerable, telling people about these things. But also, they were annoyed because they couldn't understand how I hid it from them for so long. And I thought I was doing good. I thought I was being strong, not putting my problems on other people. But then I realised it's not. When you're part of a group or you've got friends like that, then by not allowing them to help you, you're doing a disservice to them as well because basically saying, I don't trust you. No, I don't like want you to help me when all they wanted to do was be there for me. And actually they were without me realising. One of the things I said to my wife was I, but, I was biting a lot or I would snap when there was in pain. I found out I did that in work as well and I realised I'd done it. But they knew to leave me alone when I was like that. As I said, my face would go. They knew when I was that colour, don't get near him, just let him go on his work. So they had been helping me all the time, but I never ever knew. But I never opened up to them, so they didn't realise what I was going through as bad. 
But then I realized when she said that there, I went, actually, no, vulnerability is not a weakness and it's not something you should worry about other people hearing. It's actually one of the biggest trends that I've got. If I can make myself vulnerable, it's supposed to be, I'm, a lot of people call me the big man. I say, I'm six feet tall, 15 stone. So I'm, as long as you got a problem, they'll come to me or the big man will deal with it. And I realized something with that, that I need to then show other people that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to talk about these things. Guys don't have to hold everything in. And that's my whole business about it. My whole philosophy in life now, and mission in life, is to make mental health conversations and the everyday conversations the same as physical health. Getting people to understand that just because you've got problems or you've suffered things or you through things, doesn't mean there's nobody there to help. There's plenty of people there, you just have to allow them to do it. And that's the thing that I never did up until this. If I hadn't had that meltdown that day, I probably never have done that. And I don't know what I would be if I'd even be here. You have realized that this has opened up something else for you, being vulnerable. And yeah. then you did something else. You started opening this space for other men. Why mm -hmm. did you do that? Because I realized there were several points throughout the experience that I've had when the only way I described to people was that my life got really dark. There was times I said when I didn't want to be here. The pain was that bad. I felt as though I was too much. Well, my wife as well. I was putting too much on everybody else because how bad I was. I knew I couldn't do the job the way I'd done it. And I said, I've always prided myself on that I've always been the best that I could be. And I knew I wasn't. Even other people wouldn't tell me that, I knew I wasn't being as good as I could be. So it worried me a lot with that. And I think that's why I wanted to help other men, especially because of position as me, that a lot of them feel in this rut and they just don't know where to go. That's how I felt, is that I knew there was people I could talk to. It's not that I didn't ask. People say you don't know, and you do know. You know there's people you could go to. You just don't want to. And then even when you do, you tell them enough without telling them everything. And that's where the vulnerability, I think, was coming in. The worry about, there were several things. Worry of the stigma of admitting that I couldn't deal with something. Was I going to be looked at as being weak by other people? My wife, family, everything. Was it going to affect my career? And I started thinking it did. Because I'd go for jobs and I wasn't getting it and I wasn't sure why. And I started blaming it on this because they're not sure when I'd go back to the hospital or not. They didn't know when this was going to break down again. So it was affecting me that way as well. And that's the hard bit. When you've got all these things that have gone against you, you start feeling as though all you are is a hindrance to everybody else. All you're doing is holding everybody else back because of the way you are. And if you can't do or be who you think you are in your own mind, then you really struggle to be there at all. And I realised I got that close one of the times when I begged the hospital to take me in to operate. Um, I had been so bad, they put me off work, which I hated. But I said my GP, my doctor had told me she didn't trust my judgement anymore and she wouldn't allow me to work. She told me that I wasn't telling the truth how bad I was. So she signed off and said, you can't go back to work until you've been operated on. So I kept trying to operate, they kept putting it off anyway. I phoned him up one day, he was literally near breaking down, saying, but pleading with him, I need this operation, I need it now, I can't keep doing this. What she says, we've only got one bit available on it for Christmas Eve, and no one wants to come to the hospital Christmas Eve. Mm. And I went, you try to spend one minute in my shoes and see what I would say no. So just put it in, I'll be there. And went in, did the operation on Christmas Eve. And I'm so glad I did, because if I didn't, that's the point I was getting to. 
when I didn't know if I wanted to be there anymore because I couldn't deal with the pain. I felt as though I was hindering everybody else. So a year and a half ago, I left my work. They said I was going to be a career coach, something I knew a bit about. I would do that, helping other people with their jobs and move on. But since I started doing that, I realised the reason was some people not moving on, especially guys, because they were in the same rut as me. It wasn't the job that was the problem. It wasn't the pressure of that. They were taking feeling imposter syndrome. They were comparing themselves to other people in the work, sometimes a lot younger ones. And they were saying, well, they've got degrees or they've got all these new qualifications. They don't have this. So they feel there's no point in going for something because they're going to give it to them anyway. But they had so much in their own life. They're also looking at kids, kids who were getting near college age, university. They wanted to help them, but they couldn't afford that to still have the life they were having with their wife without having a problem. So they had to decide whether to go and get another job or try and get that big promotion or go sideways to try and move up. And it just feels like overwhelm. You're trying everything, but nothing seems to be working. And I realised with a lot of company, that was the problem that we all got through. There's a similar thing for so many guys working through because they're trying to do it all on their own. They're not talking even to their partner, their wife, or husband, whoever. They're not talking to the doctors. They're not talking to a specialist. They're not talking to therapists like me. What they're trying to do is just batter on me until it gets to the point they can't. And I started looking at it and said, I want to do talks on this. But I was shocked when I got the stats. In the UK, over the last 10 years especially, 75% of the people who take their own life in the UK are male. And the majority of them are between 45 and 49 years old. Okay, whoa, exactly. whoa, whoa. Say that line all over again, brother. Everybody takes their own life in the UK. Three out of every four are male. And the majority of them are between 45 and 49 years old. The exact point in your life when people call a midlife crisis or they're struggling with that policy because the young ones are, they think are coming through, the family need things they don't feel as though they can provide anymore. They feel as though they're useless. They feel as they're stuck in that rut and they just cannot get out. So they don't know where to go. And the stats is the opposite if you look at female. Females are more likely to go and get up, be depressed or suffer from anxiety. Now, the reason they do that isn't there's more females suffering up than male? Is there a will to go and get help and they speak about it? So the stats show that. So that's why it's conflicting with male and female, is because the females, are, the women are getting help, when they're right to do it, go and talk about it. They get that help. That's why there's only a quarter of them that eventually take their own life, the ones that don't get the help. But that's why it's the opposite around statistic. It's not that more men don't suffer depression or anxiety. It's they don't know how to get help or don't get the help during that. So they burn out, and then the only way they can feel they can do it is to take their own lives and they're not a burden on everybody else. But they're not realising the family would support them just as much as they would support the family. But they don't know how to say that or to open up to feel, let themselves feel that. They don't realise that, but if they just sat down in the family's boat, like I did in my life, then they'd realise that they would rather have you there suffering or them having to give things up for that than not have you in the first place. Wow, those are some staggering numbers. And just as you're dealing with that out there, the staggering numbers here in the States, particularly when we had the pandemic and all that stuff, what you was hearing, particularly out here, um, and it's it's getting to the space where now it's no longer, I think particularly for men, that it's no longer accepted with you just saying, oh, no, I'm good, just as you said, as you grew up, yeah. It was, hey, look, keep it to yourself. Nobody is going to know. 
and that's not their business but now it's like to open these spaces now for men and it's no longer men laughing at you saying oh well you be all right hit you in the chest and man up as you said earlier that's not accepted no more and i find this interesting with you anthony that from this pain that you were dealing with and this pent-up emotion pent-up everything that you've been holding back for years and years at a time i remember when you said sometime that it's just like a kettle that you try to hold its the mouth and cover it eventually it's going to explode and now to lead you into this space where you are helping other men is this what you consider part of your life's purpose at the moment I have a mentor now who helps me with the business side and he told me that I had to tell my story and do this rather than being what I want. And when I went to see him, I wanted to be a career coach and that still. He's the one that taught me around with us because he said, you are in the place you're always meant to be. You just never knew you were meant to be here. Mm. And I think he's right. Looking at what I've done in my life, the things that I've always done, it's led to the point that I'm in now. All the experiences I've been through, all the things that I've, ha- that I've faced, They've led me to the point of that I got to that stage when I said I would never enough give up. So it was what would people I call it epiphany moment and light moment. It wasn't quite like that. It wasn't quick. I want this bright light happened. I started to walk through all that. But as I was walking through it and helping myself, I started to realise that I was meeting other people with similar things. Because when people heard me talking, I had some guys say, I know what that feels like. I went, well, if you spoke to anybody, well, no, nah, I'll be okay though. But they were given a little bit of themselves to say that. But then if anybody else was around, they wouldn't have spoken about it. Because no, I'd been through it. Without, and that's when I realised then is that the more people I can get out to, the more groups even that I can speak to, then hopefully the guys will see that, that it is okay for us to speak now. And either come and get me on a one-to-one basis, or if I can't help, I'll get somebody that I know. If there's somebody in the local area that they, they know they can go talk to, go and do that first of all. Go and have a chat room just to see, and maybe it just saves you becoming one of those statistics. Is the cancer in remission or? No, it's, it only keeps saying is it's stable. It's not spread. So, and as that it's not spread from the, the prostate where I've got it. So it's one of those things that it could always happen. Explain it like the volcano, it could happen anytime. Right. There's no point worrying about it for me. It's nothing I can control. They can't give me anything to deal with that, but it is. So they've done all they can. It's now just wait and oh, it never comes back. Or if it does, I'll just deal with it now if it does happen. Anthony 2.0 comes through, bringing out who he is and speaking and letting out his emotions, letting about how he feels. What has that done between you and your wife? Made us a lot closer. Uh, we always were close. People know our history. We've always been really close. I know that I would not be here if it wasn't for her. I can't put in what's stronger than that that I would never be here if she wasn't there. Um, I would never have made it through this if it wasn't for her. And I just want to give, have the lifestyle that I need to have the now to help other people. Let that consume me because I was getting a bit bad that I want to help that many people that, yeah, forgetting we still go to the time for us as well. Um, so it's getting the balance with everything. And that's what I want other people to see, that we've come through her so much. The thing is that for people to understand, I, this is not a medical cure. I'm not at the end of the journey of that. My journey's gonna go for the rest of my life. I know that. I have to face that, that's it. That was the thing that I had to face the most and come to, to settle myself within myself that I can't do anything about that fight. I can't heal myself. 
but I can stop it overpowering me and taking over my life. So that's what I do, and I have to work within limitations of that. That's what I want other people to realise. There's always an option. There's always things you can do. Yeah, you might never be able to do all the things you did before, but it'd be amazing to find the things you can do now. And you'll find what I found in my life, your partner, your husband, your wife, whoever it is, they will always be there for you. And that's the thing a lot of guys have got to be like. They'll always have someone in their corner. And if you think about it for that split second, what would it be like for them when you're not there? Mm. We always think we're doing the best for us by doing that. If people think you take their own life, it's because you don't want to believe them. But just imagine the hole you believe in them with. And that's what people realise is, get the help before it gets to that stage. Talk to someone, anyone. Listen to your show. Listen to people that's here. You're doing an amazing job, what you do with us. Highlighting these things, bringing it out to people to let them see. And that's an amazing thing in itself. And that's all we need is more people to do this. Then more guys will open up and these statistics will fall. And how long you and your wife have been together? We've been married now for 18 years. Married for 18 um, years. But we've, we've met each other, for, especially for next year. It'll be 40 years since we met each other next year. Anthony, Gordon, why do you keep your towel? It's hard when you've got to do that about yourself and look at yourself like that. Because, as I said earlier, so many other people worse off than me, and I know that. I think for me, it's because having that realisation, and it was, I think it was a Rocky film, it's something like that that I've seen this before, about it doesn't matter how many times you get hit, it's how many times you come back, and you keep moving forward. And I think that's the thing that people have gave me, is that no oh, matter what I've been through, somehow I've always managed to do that. Get back up, no matter how bad I've got, and keep moving forward. And if it wasn't for my wife, I said I wouldn't be able to do that. So we're more of a, not just a couple of partnership, whatever you want to say it as well, but it's that strength that I get from her that drives me on to keep doing this. And that's where I should keep my time, for her sake. Wow. So Anthony, before we hop out of here, if there's any last words you want to go ahead and let out to the world, my man, the floor is yours. Uh, just one simple message on it. One, Anthony, please keep doing what you're doing. If you feel stuck, you feel in a rut, you feel anything, if you just want somebody to talk to it away, please contact me. If anybody wants and do any talks on suicide awareness and that, I'm happy to do that for the groups as well and help them. If it, Just get the message out to people. There is things that we can do, any special family members, friends, colleagues. You mentioned a good point earlier. It's not right anymore for people to just say man up and everything. But also it's not right if you ask someone, are they okay? And they say, yeah. And you can see they're not. Ask them again, but just say, are you really okay? That's what you want to know. That second question, are you really okay? And you're more likely to open up then. So remember that, if nothing else. If they just say, yeah, and you're not sure to somebody, don't leave it. Just say to them, are you really okay? And get them to open up. Anthony, I know you have all your information and everything, podcasts and all that, social media. Let's hear it, man. Well, if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to email, it's Tony Gordon at changingyourmindlimited.com. It's Tony Gordon at changingyourmindlimited, limited is ltd.com. So you can get me there. So our website is changingyourmindlimited.com. And the podcast, if you want to listen to that, is called Break Free from Your Monkey Mind. It's a Buddhist term that makes, means basically we want to get your mind to be quiet. Stop all these rational thoughts going through your head. Break free from your monkey mind. I like that. <laughs> there it is. You have it right there. Mr. Gordon, thank you so much for joining me. And my good man, you have officially survived Boogie's Gym. This spar session is now over. 
Thank you, Anthony. It is over. It is over. But yes, folks, thank you so much, Mr. Gordon. But ladies and gentlemen, with that being said, you heard what Anthony has went through and how he was able to go ahead and push his way through when he had to finally make himself vulnerable for something that he didn't do for a long time in his life. And now we're looking at a whole different version. Also, check out the podcast. I promise you, you want to check it out. I've listened to a couple of episodes and yeah. Yeah, you, you're definitely going to have to break free from your monkey mind. Thank you so much for joining me. And, of course, I don't want to go ahead and leave out of here without giving my regards to Geraldine. Hello, Geraldine. I know that Anthony was supposed to be doing some stuff around the house, but blame it on me. I apologize for keeping away from you that long. So, like I always tell you, wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears. But whatever you do, don't throw in your towel. This is your man, Ant Boogie. I will check you when I check you. I will see you when I see you. We are out of here.